Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analyst Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey. How you doing, Chris? We've got the latest earnings from Wall Street. We'll talk sports gaming and Super Bowl prop bets with our guest, Chad Millman. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with big news from the C-suite. On Tuesday afternoon, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos announced he will be stepping down as CEO later this year. Bezos will stay on as chairman of the board. And taking his place as CEO will be the head of Amazon Web Services, Andy Jassy. Ron, let me start with you. CEO transitions can be rocky, particularly in the case of a founder-led company. That said, Andy Jassy's been at Amazon since 1997. This really seems like the right person for the job. Yeah, two two high-level thoughts I have. Um, first, I'm not surprised that Bezos is moving on to the executive chairman. It, it was bound to happen. He wants to focus thing, on things like Blue Origin, Day One Fund, the Bezos Earth Fund. He, he's got other things he wants to do. Um, I think it's important maybe to point out that this continues the trend of CEOs moving on to an executive chairman role rather than just a chairman role. Um, and what that means is he's going to also be an employee, which also signals to investors that he will still be involved in some capacity on a day-to-day basis. Now, is that going to actually happen? I don't know. Was this a move just to placate in- investors, as it, as it was done with Bob Iger, for example? Um, I'm not, well, it remains to be seen. But I think the, the executive chairman um, kind of is a signal to folks, like, don't worry. He's not abandoning the ship here. He's going to still be highly involved, even more so than a regular chairman of the board. Uh, as far as Jassy goes, you know, I think Jason probably knows both him and the cloud business better than me. But he seems like a, a total solid choice, as you said. Been with Amazon since '97. He built the entire cloud business. My guess is this is a signal that cloud will be, you know, doubling down on the cloud, which should be a surprise to no one. Um, it's a very important part of their business. So I'm fine with the transition. I'm not selling my shares. I think good days are still ahead. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, Ron. I mean, I'm definitely not selling my shares. Um, I mean, we'll obviously see in time if if uh, Mr. Jassy has the chops to run the business. But I do agree with you. I think he's the sensible choice given what we know about him, and given what we know about the direction of Amazon the business. I mean, it feels like they've really got the North American retail business where they want it. Plenty of growth to come as more and more uh, people go towards e-commerce and and the international business is following suit but but I think Amazon web services AWS that's the key part of the business to focus on and when you look at Jassy's track record there I mean if you just go back a few years here and look at the data um, back in the fourth quarter of 2018 they reported AWS was operating in an annual revenue uh, revenue run rate of 30 billion dollars a year later in fourth quarter of 2019 it was 40 billion dollars then this most recently reported quarter it was 51 billion dollars and the asterisk there for this quarter was they actually added more revenue quarter over quarter and year over year this past quarter than any other quarter in the company's history. And so clearly we can see that that AWS is kind of where they see the puck going, so to speak. I mean, and 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 I think that having Mr. Jassy running the business makes a lot of sense given his history, not only with the company but his intimate knowledge of the AWS business as well. Bezos news overshadowed Amazon's fourth quarter results, highlighted by a record 
$125 billion in revenue, which, Jason, that was a few billion higher than Amazon's own guidance. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that was you know it was what a week or two ago we were talking about Apple finally hitting that one hundred billion dollar quarter, and so Amazon uh, right there with them, and it, it feels like a broken record every quarter. We just talk about wow, Amazon did it again, and guess what, Chris, they did it again this quarter. Um, North American retail up forty percent, uh, international retail was up fifty seven percent, and they are inching closer to. Sustainable profitability there. Um, again, my eye always goes towards the the AWS side of the business first, and looking at that uh, revenue growth of twenty eight percent might have been a little bit below what uh, analysts were looking for, but they also grew operating profit in the AWS segment by thirty seven percent. So, so you can really see how they're able to leverage that model and drive uh, profitability for the business. And, and AWS represents well more than half of the company's total operating profit. So again, going back to the selection of, of Mr. Jassy, looking at these results, it really all kind of makes sense. Amazon had the bigger headlines, but Alphabet may have had the better week. Shares up 12% and hitting a new high after a great fourth quarter, fueled by strong numbers out of Google's core ad business. And Ron, YouTube's revenue was up big too. Now a $1.4 trillion company that continues to post impressive results and move higher. Beat expectations for both ad and cloud, although cloud continues to lose money, but at a lower rate. Um, they give us details about the segment, so a lot of folks were looking at cloud. But total revenue up 23%, Google services up 22%, YouTube, as you said, up 46%, incredible numbers, search up 17%, cloud was up 47% but still lost about a billion dollars. Um, but net income up 43% on widening margins. Incredibly impressive. And that will continue to get better as cloud improves. Ron, this is the first time they broke out the cloud revenue. And as you said, you know they're, they're still losing money on it. Did you take the breaking out of the revenue as a separate division as a sign that they're really confident they're close to profitability there? Yes, I think they wanted to show you that Cloud as a percentage of the business was improving. We're at about 7% now, so obviously still a small amount, but it is growing. $1.2 billion loss for the quarter sounds like a lot of money, but that is improving too. We saw those margins really important for this business and the stock going forward widen pretty impressively. And that will only go up as cloud gets closer to profitability. And then if it turns, margins will be significantly higher than they are now, and, and theoretically the stock will as well. PayPal's fourth quarter report capped the best year in company history. Shares up 14% this week, not just because fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected, Jason, but PayPal's guidance for 2021 was really strong. It was. And I mean, this was the best year in the company's history with record everything, basically. So uh, we talked about <laughs> Amazon kind of feeling like a broken record. Well, PayPal's kind of getting there too. It seems like we're just saying the same thing every quarter. Just wow, they just continue to get it done. And, and when you look at the numbers, total payment volume for the quarter, $277 billion. That's up 40%, excluding eBay from the equation. Uh, revenue was up 23%. 16 million accounts added. They ended the year with 377 million active accounts. That's up 24%. And uh, the total take rate, 
which ultimately is is what's flowing down to the profitable uh, profitability line for the for the company. Total take rate of two point two one percent. There's slight compression there, just as, as costs continue to come down for consumers. But I mean, that's no real surprise. Uh, getting to the guidance, as you mentioned, for fiscal twenty twenty one, calling for total payment volume growth in the high twenty percent range with revenue of around twenty five and a half billion dollars. That would be up nineteen percent. Calling for an additional fifty million accounts. Added for the year, uh, and, and listen, man, they they called for 35 million at this same time last year, and they wrapped up the year with more than 70 million. So let's just take that 50 million with a grain of salt. But so many things they're doing well, and it's really interesting to see. There was a question on the call in regard to, to what's really catching their attention. What are, what's being received well? Because they're doing all of these new things with with credit and with crypto and and with buy now pay later. And, and CEO Dan Shulman actually said the biggest surprise was the response to that buy now pay later offering that they've rolled out for consumers. They've seen a tremendous response. Three million customers using it now, paying uh, with hundreds of thousands of merchant customers. And so, just given. Given the growth in that particular space with IPOs like companies like Affirm, uh, you can see. I mean, PayPal is just utilizing that massive network and rolling out new products and services to consumers, and it seems like they like them. Real quick, uh, before we go to the break, uh, PayPal is having an investor day next week. It's their first time in a few years of having an investor day. Is there anything in particular you're anticipating for that, or are you just going to sit back and and see what they come out with in terms of uh, their three to five year outlook? Yeah, you know, I, I I think it's interesting that they really feel comfortable giving that three to five year outlook at this point because they did mention in the call here that that this behavior, this shift in consumer behavior, they feel like due to the pandemic, this is sustainable and it's not going back. And so I think this this big focus on cashless on mobile that isn't going to go away. And and I think really it's just a point of understanding what kinds of products and services they have on their radar to roll out in the coming years. But I'm going to sit back and take it all in, and I will let you know what I find out. What's better than video games and burritos? Video game and burrito stocks hitting new all-time highs. Details after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Shares of Activision Blizzard up 10% on Friday after a strong holiday quarter. And Ron, I know they make a lot of video games at Activision Blizzard, but the Call of Duty franchise just continues to perform well. Yeah, that Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, and Candy Crush, which I never understood, um, are clearly getting it done. This stock is up 75% over the last year, and as you said, adding another 10% this week. Uh, numbers are really strong. The revenue is up 21%, with net bookings up 12.5%. Net bookings from digital channels, which is where this industry has certainly moved and is continuing to move, is up 24%. So they've got monthly active users now of 397 million. Uh, Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War, I love the names of the Call of Duty. Call of Duty games, uh, was the bestseller across all platforms in 2020, according to a research firm NPD. Um, and as I said, World of Warcraft and Candy Crush were, were really strong as well. So, you've got adjusted earnings up 23%. Guidance was solid. They increased their dividend 15%. You now get a 1.8% yield on, on that. They authorized the new two-year stock repurchase program for $4 billion worth of stock. You know the company, the whole industry for that matter. You know uh, whether it's Electronic Arts or Take Two, uh, benefited from the fact that we, we've all basically been on lockdown, sitting on our couches, 
Some of us playing video games, others watching Netflix. Uh, new console refresh, PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X certainly also helped. Uh, whenever there's a console refresh, there's a renewed interest in, in repurchasing or adding new games. Um, and so the company continues to execute really, really well. Shares of Unity Software have had impressive gains lately, but gave some of those gains back on Friday after fourth quarter results showed that revenue growth is slowing down. And Jason, this is a growth stock, and we don't like when revenue growth slows down. Not even just a little bit? I mean, not, not even, even just, just a, a little bit. Yeah, I guess little. you're right. Um, well, as I say this as a shareholder, I, w I wouldn't let the market's reaction fool you. This was a really strong quarter. Uh, revenue of $220 million uh, and $772 million well exceeded guidance set last quarter for both the quarter and the year, respectively. Uh, losses were lighter. Guidance for the coming year right in line. Uh, they're closing in on $1 billion in annual revenue already. I mean, I, I think this is a business that's doing a lot of what we were hoping it would do. It's just valuation is usually the biggest risk for a company like this that just IPO'd and it's been on a tear ever since. Uh, but when you look at the numbers, uh, the engagement, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, games made with Unity accounted for 71% of the top 1,000 mobile games in the fourth quarter of 2021. Uh, or 2020, I'm sorry. Uh, monthly active end users who consumed content created or operated with Unity that reached on average 2.7 billion people per month in the fourth quarter of 2020. That was up 63% from a year earlier. And so I, I think that, again, valuation being a little bit of a risk, I think management did a good job on the call. They, they set the expectation appropriately, I feel, that some of 2020's success was pulled forward due to the pandemic. Um, there are also some concerns that are not quite as, as quantifiable in the long term, just in regard to the Apple privacy risk that they talked about on the call as well. But, but all in all, I mean, this is a this is a tool that it's not only a gaming engine, really, what, what Unity is, is is building here, but it is a creation engine that extends well beyond the gaming universe. So I think the long term story for this business is absolutely in, intact. And uh, again, as a shareholder, uh, I, I feel really good about owning these shares. Fourth quarter revenue for Pinterest rose 76%, capping off a year in which they added 100 million users to the platform. So maybe no surprise then that shares of Pinterest were up on Friday and hitting a new high, Ron. How about up 270% over the last year? Boy, did I miss this one. But it's not about me, Chris. It's not all about me. Let's get to the numbers. Uh, as you said, just unbelievable. Fourth quarter revenue jumped 76%. This is for a business that I didn't even understand until relatively recently, and I had no interest in relative, until relatively recently. Uh, as we saw with Google, ad spending rebounded significantly as businesses moved online in a big way as a result of the pandemic. And people started spending again, uh, ad spending really popping up and, and affecting a lot of, of the advertising uh, businesses that we follow. Uh, now has 459 million monthly users. That's up 37%. And as you said, added over 100 million users uh, globally in 2020. Adjusted net income. This is look at this number up a whopping 283%. Now it's not a multi-trillion-dollar company. It's still relatively small, but that's still 294 million dollars in quarterly earnings for a company. Again, that that I, I had no interest in, but the, the numbers speak for themselves. Management said they'll continue to invest in the business. That's going to include additional headcount. Uh, they're going to go uh, expand their international business significantly. They think there's a significant amount of growth there and guidance. They think uh, revenue will increase in the low 70% range in the first quarter. So, there seems to be no let up in that growth.
Chipotle shares hit a new high earlier in the week before issuing fourth quarter results. And Jason, I get that expectations were high. That's why the stock sold off a little bit later in the week. But I mean, the same store sales were solid. And Chipotle's digital sales just continue to impress. Yes, at first blush, you would wonder what in the world has the market paying 140 times trailing earnings for a purveyor of burritos. I mean, this isn't coffee, <laughs> a, Chris. A delicious purveyor of burritos. <laughs> yes, uh, you're right. They are very, very tasty. I agree. Um, but but when you couple the execu execution along with what still appears to be a very significant market opportunity, I mean, I, I get the market's enthusiasm here. The stock's up 68% over the last 12 months, and I think there's a lot more where that came from. Uh, sales were up 11.6% from a year ago. Comps 5.7%, all relatively, eh, you know, okay. But but yeah, you, you made the point there. Digital sales, digital sales for the quarter grew 177.2%, accounted for 49% of all sales. Half of those were delivery. And listen, I mean, going forward, I think it's reasonable to assume that's gonna that's gonna be a big part of this company's story. And uh, working on initiatives like Chipotle Lanes that are getting uh, gaining some traction, and they're even testing out a digital-only store, closing in on 20 million rewards members. And then talking about that market opportunity, they're going to open 200 more stores this year on top of the 2,750 stores that they have today. And it feels like they could open a lot more from there as well. So, again, I mean, as long as they can avoid those real problematic things like health scares, for example, it does feel like this is a business that's being very well managed. And they got kind of that Jamie Dimon thing going on with the balance sheet, too. It's a fortress like with $1.1 billion to zero debt. Jason, remind me, are we anywhere with breakfast? Because a <laughs> breakfast burrito is pretty good. It sure feels like we keep on hearing rumors and, and uh, rhetoric, and I, I just don't know that there's anything really firm there, but it, it feels like it's something on management's radar that they eventually want to introduce. I agree. That would be a stellar addition to what is already a very good menu. Real quick, Jason, do you think at some point in the next five years, they take a run at another food concept? Honestly, I would prefer not. I think that they have such a market opportunity ahead with just the core Chipotle store. Um, learn the lessons from the past, right? And, and, and get your house in order first. And I think that if they just pursue this, this Chipotle concept for the next several years, that should do them and investors just fine. All right, Jason Moser, Ron Gross, guys, we will see you later in the show. Up next, Chad Millman from the Action Network analyzes the state of sports betting in America and what he's going to be watching for in Super Bowl 55. That's next, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner. Sometimes I feel like my only friend is the city I live in, the city of angels. Lonely as I am, together with you. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. The American Gaming Association estimates that more than $4 billion will be wagered on this year's Super Bowl. An increasing number of those bets are going to be placed online. Chad Millman is an expert when it comes to the sports betting industry. He is the chief content officer at the Action Network. And he joins me now from Connecticut. Chad, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, before we get to this year's game, let's go big picture. Let's talk about the overall industry. Just in the past year alone, 
Six states and the District of Columbia have given the green light to sports betting. It's now legal in 20 states. There are at least a dozen more that have legislation that's being considered. Is this the greatest time ever in America for sports betting as an industry? Because it sure seems that way. It's truly extraordinary, and it's extraordinary to be a part of it. You know, Action Network, we launched three years ago in January of 2018. And in that time, in that moment, sports betting wasn't legal anywhere except the state of Nevada, as we sort of think about sports betting. And then there were lotteries in Delaware and Montana. In May of that year, the Supreme Court overturned the federal ban on sports betting. New Jersey immediately legalized. And as you noted, since then, there's been this just tidal wave of states legalizing it. Um, And this particular moment is the best moment of all of them. Uh, The state of Virginia, you know it well, just legalized online sports betting. The state of Michigan just legalized online sports betting. And there's a very big distinction between what is happening in a place like D.C., where it's very it's it's run by a lottery and it's much more rigid in how you can make your bets and where you're allowed to make your bets, and a state like Virginia, where anybody who is at any place within the state can open up their computer, they can play with their phone, and they can register for a sports book. And it has made the industry explode when you talk about the places where you can bet online. I'm sorry to make the comparison I'm about to make, but it immediately leapt to my mind when you were providing that context of what we have seen as investors over the past few years with the marijuana industry, where an increasing number of states are legalizing marijuana at varying levels. And yet, on the national level, we certainly haven't seen that same type of movement over the past few years. And there's not a lot of reason to think there's going to be a big push for national legalization. Is it the same case with sports betting, where, yes, we've got 20 states where it's legal, we've got a dozen more, um, some section of those will, you know, we're going to see this steady drumbeat on the state level. Is there a drumbeat for national legalization, or does that even matter? I don't think a drumbeat for legal for national legalization exists right now. A, there's just not going to be at a federal level, at a congressional level, the appetite to take it up in any committee. It's just not going to be something that rises to the priority list because it has been legalized in so many states. And you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, right? Like New Jersey had $6 billion in handle. That is $6 billion bet on sports in 2020. That's more than Nevada. That's more than Pennsylvania. It's more than Illinois. In two very short years, New Jersey became the bellwether for all of the states that have legalized sports betting. Is New Jersey going to have the appetite to then pull back on what they do and have to figure out how to play at a federalized level? No. And none of the states are. And and now that it is becoming legal state by state, there's no appetite for anybody to figure out, okay, how do we nationalize this? 
Online betting for the Super Bowl is an estimated 60% higher this year than it was last year. How much of what we're seeing in the rise of online betting is natural? We would have we would have seen this no matter what's going on. And how much do you think is driven by the pandemic? A lot of it is driven by the pandemic. The the I think the rise in online betting would have happened. It would have happened at a much slower pace. And by slower, I mean, instead of 12 months, it might have been 24 to 36 months. It's all within five years. Every state that wants sports betting, there might be two or three that aren't going to do it, but pretty much every state is going to do it. And, you know, you mentioned off the top, there's 12 states that, that, sort of have some kind of legislation that they are trying to push through. 20 states have done it. You know, this past year, we saw Acceleration Colorado launched in May, right? Uh, Illinois, which had legalized it, um, but legalized it in a politically friendly way, but not a consumer friendly way, um, then changed their, they originally said, you can bet online in Illinois but you have to go to a legal sports book, a brick and mortar sports book to do it. And in that case, you can only go to one of them. They gave a individual company the monopoly on doing it. And of course, what happened was the pandemic came, nobody was going to the casinos. So that casino lobbied the state and was like, hey, we need to get online betting. So the state allowed online betting, right? So what you're seeing is an acceleration of states because they're realizing, oh my God, New Jersey did $6 billion in handle. How do we get a piece of that? Let's go to this year's game and specifically prop bets. And for those unfamiliar, prop bets are obviously you can bet on who's going to win the game, Kansas City or Tampa Bay. Prop bets are side bets, which really have become a, a bigger and bigger part of sports betting, particularly around the Super Bowl, because you can bet on things like, who's going to be the MVP of the game? How many receiving yards is Rob Gronkowski going to have? You can also bet on some more esoteric things, like, what's the over-under on the national anthem? You know, Two minutes, over or under. Uh, one I saw today, will the jersey number of the first player to score be over or under 17 and a half? Before we get into the nitty-gritty of, of prop betting, how do you think about it? How do professional gamblers think about it? Do they think, well, that's just a fun thing to get people interested, but serious bettors don't do it? Or are serious bettors involved here? Serious bettors are seriously involved here. Like These are markets that, to them, they think they can take advantage of. Uh, I do a podcast every week called The Favorites with a professional better named Simon Hunter. Our entire show yesterday was dedicated to the props, and those are called prop. That's short for proposition bets. Um, and another way that people talk about bets are markets, right? And so we spent the entire show talking about the prop bets, the markets that he sees an advantage of based on his models, his algorithms, his simulations, where uh, the market is either underpriced or overpriced, and he can win one way or the other. He sees an advantage. Um, it's it in in the sports betting world. College basketball has always been the sport that a lot of professional bettors love because there's the volume of games is so high that bookmakers can't keep up. It's similar with the Super Bowl. There are so many markets, even though the bookmakers are the ones putting them out, like they get mispriced 
And the professional bettors know that the public, which is sort of the Joe Schmoes like you and me, will come in and make bad decisions and move prices and lines in different ways. And they could take advantage of that. So, uh, you know, if you ask professional bettors, they would say this is an amazing week. Are there prop bets that look particularly interesting to you, either from the standpoint of, oh, I think there's money to be made here, or ones that you just look at and you think, well, that's just fun? There's both. Uh, you know, I, I can give you a few. Like there's there's some that that we've been talking about, and I will say also one one other sort of contextual framing here. Uh, prop bets have become increasingly more important for bookmakers and betters the last five years. Like more and more, they've been offering on a game to game basis, not just in the NFL, but in college football, in the NBA, in Major League Baseball, college basketball, etc. The ability to bet on player performance. Um, so all season long, you could bet from Patrick Mahomes down to the total number of catches for the fourth string receiver on the chiefs. And there are many, many betters whose livelihoods are based only on that. And so, um, that's also helped with the rise in popularity of prop bets. Uh, some of the ones that, that I've been looking at, I know that a lot of professional betters, um, like the over one and a half field goals to be scored in the first half, uh, largely because the Kansas City Chiefs are the lowest scoring uh, team in the red zone when it comes to touchdowns in the NFL. Uh, they're great at sort of lo- like longer drives, big plays, but they're not as effective from inside the opponent's 20 yard line. Uh, and oftentimes, and this is historic for Tom Brady's teams in the Super Bowl, too. First quarters are very low scoring. Uh, and the data set, if you look back at the conference title games for the AFC and the NFC and the Super Bowl, um, for I think the past 50 games, there's only six or seven that went over 10 points total in the first quarter. So you're looking at high probability for a lot of field goals because teams come out tight. There's been a lot of talk in the investing world over the past couple of weeks about GameStop, everything going on there. What will people learn from the GameStop story? Uh, Where I'm going with this is, I saw a thing that, uh, because for those unfamiliar, the Super Bowl is going to happen on Sunday. And on Monday, sports books in Las Vegas are going to come out with their odds for the 2022 Super Bowl. So, I saw this story that a year ago, after the Super Bowl, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a pretty nondescript team, were 50 to 1 shots to win the Super Bowl. And then a few months later, Tom Brady went to Tampa Bay. And all of a sudden, the odds went from 50 to 1 to, I think, 15 to 1. If they win the Super Bowl, how bad is it going to be for some casinos that a year ago were saying, oh, sure, 50 to 1, we'll give you that? Is it bad enough that we're going to see a change in that behavior? Uh, it'll be bad. It'll definitely be some mid to high six figure payouts. Um, but sports books learned their lesson in 1999. I remember this very specifically. The whole reason I got into sports betting is because I wrote a book called The Odds about guys who bet on sports for a living. And in 1999, I moved to Vegas for six months and I tracked professional bettors and I tracked the bookmakers at the Stardust Hotel, which at the time was the premier sports book 
setting all the lines that every other bookmaker in Vegas and every other illegal bookmaker they followed, right? So it was like the sort of tipping point for all the sports betting universe. The Stardust had the uh, St. Louis Rams in 1999 at 200-1 to to win the Super Bowl. And they took several bets of a couple hundred dollars up to $1,000. And lo and behold, at the end of the year, the St. Louis Rams win the Super Bowl. It didn't bankrupt the Stardust, you know, but it didn't help them. They lost quite a bit of money. And... After that experience, sportsbooks stopped letting themselves have huge liabilities on futures. You were no longer going to be able to get a team at 150 to 200 to one. And if you could get that team, you're not getting down more than 10 or 12 bucks. Um, So they were willing to take the liability that they felt comfortable with, but not a dollar more. Las Vegas, the innovation, they're way ahead of their time in terms of learning. Yeah, right. You can follow him on Twitter. You can check him out on The Favorites Podcast. Chad Melman, great talking to you, and good luck on Sunday. Thank you. Appreciate it. Coming up, Jason Moser and Ron Gross return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Born a natural loser, I can't recall to swear. Raised on pool and poker and a dollar here and there. Blackjack hand, dealer man, just get a... As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Guys, one more news item before we get to the radar stocks. Shares of Uber up 14% this week, not on earnings, but an acquisition. Uber is buying Drizzly a wonderfully named alcohol delivery service for $1.1 billion. And Ron, this is intriguing to me for a couple of reasons, one of which is we've talked plenty of times about the Uber Eats part of Uber's business. Um, This is Uber making a billion-dollar investment in that direction. I actually like this investment. I don't usually like acquisitions, but I do like this one. I think it makes good sense, especially as more and more states open up the ability for alcohol delivery. I think uh, Drizzly's in 1,400 cities and counting now. Um, I'm not sure personally I want it to be any easier for me to get my hands on alcohol. <laughs> but for you guys, I'm sure that's great. Um, no, but I do think, I think it makes sense. It's a nice adjunct to their business. Well, and apparently part of Drizzly's business in a couple of cities involves cannabis delivery. And Uber was pretty quick to point out they did not acquire that part of Drizzly's business. They're just focused on the alcohol. But I don't know, Jason. I mean, you hear about food delivery and the challenges with you know keeping the food warm, all that sort of thing. I think it's one more reason to like this acquisition. It's not like you need to worry about what shape your alcohol is in. Uh, as long as the <laughs> bottle hasn't been broken, you're fine. Yeah, or just don't shake the beer excessively, right? I don't know. I mean, I, the the name still kind of has me scratching my head a little bit. Drizzly kind of sounds like the way you would feel the morning after you get too big of a delivery from Drizzly. You know what I mean? Like, how are you feeling today? Oh, I'm just feeling kind of drizzly. Um, but yeah, alcohol. We talk about it with restaurants. It's a tremendous margin booster for restaurants. It it, it is. 
You know, I said uh, Chipotle is not coffee. Well, alcohol is very close to what coffee is. It's it's a, a legally addictive substance for many folks, and, and for better or worse, I, I have a feeling that we will see a lot of alcohol delivery in the future. Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Scott's Miracle Grow Company, SMG, manufacturer of consumer lawn and garden products, founded in 1868, for those that are keeping score, shares up 90% over the last year. Uh, company-wide sales up 105% in the recent quarter. Now, their hydroponics segment, they call it Hawthorne, had an increase of 71%. And hydroponics is basically growing plants indoors without soil. And Dan, this segment is strong with the cannabis industry, which I think will continue to grow and be a nice, um, nice, nice boost to their business. This is the first time they've ever made a profit in this quarter since in the history of the company. So things are going quite well for them. Their first commercial will appear on the Super Bowl uh, in the second quarter of the game. Keep your eye out for Scott's Miracle Grow. Not too cheap, uh, not too expensive really at 29 times forward earnings. But I don't think this incredible growth continues unabated. Dan, question about Scott's Miracle Grow? Not so much of a question, Chris. More of a comment. Scott's Miracle Grow. You know, they're 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 all over the place. They have a huge market share when it comes to lawn care products. But I just wanted to say, I miss the Scottish guy they had in the ads a few years back. <laughs> he had a lot of great personality. I don't know why they got rid of him. Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Uh, yeah, nice week for a company called Synaptics. Ticker is S-Y-N-A. I think I've mentioned this company on the show maybe once before. But it's a recommendation I brought into our augmented reality service a while back. Uh, done very well for us. They reported a very good quarter this week. Uh, the market has received it well. But, but Synaptics makes its hay by selling its technology uh, to some of the world's largest uh, original equipment manufacturers, companies like Alphabet and Samsung, Sony, Lenovo, uh, Lenovo and more. Um, and that technology covers a very broad spectrum, chips, firmware, software, AI, you name it. So, they, they do a lot of different things uh, as, as we move more towards tech and, and uh, the capabilities that 5G is going to roll out, which is uh, a very, it's a big market opportunity, I think, with a lot of, a lot of uh, runway in front of it. And um, a little bit of a business in transition. It looks like that transition is really working. They're, they're really focused on taking the company towards the IoT, the Internet of Things opportunity. There may be some hiccups in the near term due to supply chain constraints due to the pandemic. Uh, that's a macro thing. That is not a business thing. So, very encouraged with the direction that Synaptics is headed. Dan? So, Synaptics, they're in a pretty saturated market space with all of the different interface technologies out there. What gives them the advantage over their competitors? Well, typically, it is the, it is the technology coupled with the length of the relationships with those original equipment manufacturers. The longer that you have those relationships, then those, those iteration cycles, those product design cycles, uh, they, they can take long periods of time. And so, you really don't want to switch unless you absolutely have to. To. Uh, so, so that technology coupled with those long, uh, well-established relationships has helped uh, put Synaptics in a pretty good place. What do you want to add, Dan? I'm going Scott's Miracle Grow Sweet. because I'm trying to grow my portfolio. <laughs> We're out of time. We'll see you next week.